Are you ready for some nosy bitches? Because this is about to get explicit. Hey, bitches. Hey, friends. Carlo, how you doing? Another week, another dollar. Is it, though? I mean, it's probably like half a dollar, but yeah. It's fine. It's fine. So if you haven't checked out our take on the Long Island Lolita, go back one episode and watch it listen to it listen to it listen to it yeah we don't do the youtube yet that might be coming we'll see michael really wants us to do youtube i mean i'm just saying it's like a twofer yeah yeah we can put the video out and the audio out like why not i do think that if we did a youtube channel or videos people would realize how much carla has to be edited and (laughs) they would see like the wizard behind the machine So, but no, I I do think like trying to find new ways to connect to the audience is a good thing. Which uh, leads us to thank you. Our pyramid scheme. (laughs) No, seriously, I completely stole that from Two Girls, One Ghost, which if you haven't listened to that podcast and you're into anything or all things paranormal, check them out. They're great. But they talk about this, the pyramid scheme. They're like, go, go tell two of your friends and then tell those two friends to tell two other friends. We want the same thing from you, please. Yeah, and you actually don't have to buy anything. You just have to like We have no merch yet. That's right. If you would listen. (laughs) It's free. It's free except for your time and adoration, (laughs) which we need in spades. I'm digging it. I like this. So please, yes, as Michael said, algorithm gods, can you please tell your friends who like true crime or maybe they like Michael and Carla listen. I know we have a few listeners like my dad who just listen because it's us. Your dad is just stinking amazing, like getting to talk to him a little bit tonight, and he's just genuinely proud of us. He's also hoping that maybe I'll pay for his retirement home. Carla, we got to have our fun one. We got to do Long Island Lolita, which was just a blast from the 90s goodness past. And everyone lived and everyone's in good spirits. This just might be a little darker this week. We're going to hear a little bit about the Hollinsburg Massacre that took place very near my hometown back in 1977. So going to take you down this journey. You know, just crazy for me. I remember this happened 10 years before I was even born. But because of the nature of a town like this, they were still talking about it when I was in my teens. Like it just completely rocked this tiny little community and left people just disbelieving what had happened. As you were telling me about it, I can imagine that hearing a story like that, it sat with me, even like us talking about it, just the way that everything went down. So we've been trying to do, you know, with the Jacob Wetterling, you have some family members that lived in that area. This is from my hometown, trying to make sure that we put in the mix some things that we're a bit more personally familiar with just because of our proximity to them. Are we ready to dive in? Yeah. Uh, It's the week before Valentine's Day in 1977. We're in the small, unincorporated community of Hollinsburg, Indiana. So um, not even officially a town. And by the way, they disbanded oh, sometime wow. yeah, in the uh, later <laughs> 19, I think it was 1990-something, that they are no longer an incorporated community. This little community, though, it's located in west-central Indiana. It's about an hour directly west of Indianapolis. And really, it's just one of those places that you go if you want to have a quiet existence. Like, you want a safe place to raise your kids. You want to be able to know everyone that's at your church. Really, you want to know everyone that's in your neighborhood, in your whole community. 
this whole township had a population of fewer than 1,500 people at Oh, the so time. it's a really small town. Tiny town, yes. So even more modernly, when I lived there, this was about 15 minutes from where I grew up, maybe seven, eight miles from where I grew up. There is one traffic light in the area. Okay. Like two gas stations. It's a community around a lake. It's largely just housing some gas stations that double as grocery stores. You do have the this the small town of Rockville that's more nearby, that's slightly larger and has some more of those kind of more mainstream amenities. It's got a few restaurants. But this place near the lake really was secluded, very, very small. And to kind of set the scene, we have four friends as we're starting this out that are driving down Interstate 74, which is a main thoroughfare interstate in the state of Indiana. And they're somewhere between Crawfordsville, Indiana, and the Indiana-Illinois state line. So again, West Central area. Some of our characters here are Roger Drollinger, who's 24. He's driving. And he has three of his friends with him. One, Michael Wright, who is 21. Daniel Stonebreaker, age 20, who's going to become very important later in this story. And David Smith, who Carla is only 17 years old. Right? That's what we talked about in the last case. When was the last time that we had a friend that was like... 17 or 16 even 19 yeah i i definitely you know even in my 20s i didn't hang out with teenagers that were that young nothing good generally comes from 17 year olds hanging out with 24 year olds or like even people who are of like drinking age and things like that i think probably on both sides same thing would say about a 24 year old you shouldn't be hanging out with a 17 year old We find out from later reports, and I don't feel like I'm giving anything away yet for this story because I I think people kind of familiar with true crime mythos are probably familiar with this case to at least some degree. But we do find out later, too, that like the relationship between David Smith, who is the 17-year-old, and Roger Drollinger, who's again 24, it wasn't like a really healthy one. There was this weird, almost obsession. David really looked up to Roger in some weird way. I know nothing about his background. He's the one that you can find the the least about. He was a minor when this happened, after all, so it makes sense. It just makes you wonder, what was home life if this 17-year-old is really glomming on to this 24-year-old and looking up to him in such an extreme way? All three of them, at the end of this, were kind of beholden to Roger, but especially this David kid, and I call him a kid intentionally, just really seemed like he looked up to him as more than just a friend, which makes this, I I don't know, just really kind of weird and twisted when you find out how it ends up. I think every episode I come out is like a such an ageist. But I do think that there's (laughs) such a big difference in your life as a teenager, quote unquote, than your life in your early 20s or your life in your late 20s or your life in your mid 30s. I don't know that you realize that until you're past it. Maybe that's the old lady in me or like the mom in me that I'm like such a stark difference of the things that you learn and also just how impressionable you are. Yes. That's why I always come back to that. So maybe I am a little bit ageist when it comes to like these teenagers and their relationships with adults. I think it's a good point and self-aware of you. And there is truly something different as someone that is in his mid-30s now. I look back on 25 and 17 and you, you kind of realize that you went through these stages and now you almost look back with some incredulity, right? Like, how the hell was <laughs> was I that dumb? How the hell was that my priority? Like, mm-hmm. how was I so selfish? How was I so like un- or- disorganized in my life? Like, you just... 
you grow up and you look back on it and realize now when I was 17 though if you would have asked me I would have told you I knew everything that there there was to know I was the shit I knew exactly what the fuck was going on if you asked my teenagers that's exactly what they would tell you is that they they know everything and I haven't lived any life because to them I haven't I've just been their mom that's very fair to say and not to say that there's probably not any positive relationships I I do think like I have familial relationships with people that when I was 17 but like outside of my family please if you're listening and you had a great friendship with someone who was in their 20s and they were instrumental in your life let me hear about it because I think (laughs) maybe the true crime world has darkened my cold heart that's right suspect everyone be suspicious be suspicious (laughs) that's right trust no one and be nosy bitches be nosy well I do think you're right though I think there's something to this that in most cases when you have someone that much younger older that kind of dynamic going on It is very rare to have that be a positive relationship, but in this case, it was exactly the trouble it sounds like. We'll go a little bit into Roger just to emphasize that point. At this point, Roger already, as we go into this story, is on trial for drug-related charges in Crawfordsville. And things aren't going well because this isn't his first round the bend when it comes to some legal troubles. And this particular trial isn't going well because no one is buying what his defense is trying to sell. They're basically trying to claim that Roger was caught in some sort of planned police entrapment scenario. Except for Carla, it's the third time. Right. Later confessions from Daniel Stonebreaker, who is the 20-year-old that I mentioned earlier that was in the car, would reveal that Roger had been steadily escalating this already unstable behavior for a long time. So he had been making trouble Kind of started small, small drug-related things. It started to get worse over time. Just an example of how this had been escalating. At one point, Roger had led this gang to do some really just mischievous and dangerous things. Like one example was they threw a cement block out their car at a motorcyclist that was driving down the road. The crew would hide in bushes by the side of the road and jump out at cars at the last minute brandishing guns so that they could stop and then rob passersby. And Roger was not one that was going to let his friends chicken out. Daniel Stonebreaker revealed that at one point, Roger pulled out a 44 Magnum on one of his friends, held it to his head, and said that he would blow his brains out if he didn't follow his orders. Yeah, I don't know if anybody needs to know this or not, but like, if that's what your friends... Are telling you then you need new friends that's all i'm saying like never Red would i ever. flag on the play my friends are like encouraging me like helping me celebrate my career achievements my bachelor party like doing all of that they are not pointing guns at my head saying do this or else but i think it's important context as we are a couple days out now from valentine's day in 1977 and at one point they're driving down the road and this is the final uphill swing into what we're about to discuss they are driving down the road and they pull up next to a volkswagen the volkswagen belonged to one debbie nickel who is out running errands at valentine's day i imagine she's just out buying some chocolates getting something maybe for her family boyfriend something like that when all of a sudden a car comes up beside her bats out of hell and she looks over sees that it's four guys in there and one of the guys that is closest to the passenger side window raises a gun and points it at her face. I am so terrified of this, especially at night. When I leave and I drive home, I won't pull up next to a vehicle. 
I always stay back a little bit or if I'm in front of it or if a car pulls up and it's like, you know, windows are like even Steven, I'm moving up a little bit because I want to know if they pull a gun or it's that scenario that I am constantly thinking about, like, what if this person gets out? What's my exit strategy? So that's like terrifying and know that I'm constantly thinking about something like that. I mean, especially on a day like that. Well, it's in the middle of the day, I don't know that I'm as suspicious no. as I would be. Like at night, I'm very suspicious about it, especially if there's not very many cars on the road. Yes. Um, but that's terrifying in the middle of the day. It's probably still kind of early. It is. Yes, it is in the middle of the day, broad daylight. And to your point, not a ton of cars on the road, right? And that was actually part of their strategy. They thought they were the only ones on the road with Debbie for as long as they could see. And in fact... The only reason that they lowered the gun and that Debbie was still alive to tell her tale later in her life is that some other truck started barreling down the road at a fast speed, too. So with that, this crew in the car spooked them. They dropped the gun. And that's probably the only thing that saved Debbie Nichols' life that day, which is just, in fact, terrifying. That's really escalating violent behavior. Well, and just what is the point of that? At that point, you were just taking sheer joy in causing someone else's panic. Because this isn't the only example, by the way. So there was another story about them doing this to a driver in an RV. So think about that. You're literally, I imagine, taking your family on vacation. You're trying to go to fucking Disneyland. And all of a sudden, you look over and someone raises a gun and is pointing it at your face. This RV driver ducked down so that he could avoid being shot, ended up crashing his RV. Now they survived, but this is the kind of thing that Roger and this crew are starting to take pleasure in. And I don't even know how to respond to that. Most of the cases that we've covered, the root of it is some sort of obsession or fixation on something. This is just random shit. And somehow that's more scary to me random stuff is terrifying it's also like i don't get into paranormal stuff because i (laughs) like whatever comes through my door i want to shoot that's right so i don't i don't like messing around i'm too catholic for that no but random things because i always think like there's risky behavior right i try to stay on the non-risky side that's right go out at in at dark by yourself but just Driving around errands at 11 o'clock in the afternoon or in the morning On Valentine's time. Day. Like, on Valentine's I'm Day. I'm getting some roses for my mom. Yeah, I'm going to the grocery store and buying my kids some, you know, chocolates or like the RV situation. That's really scary. I think it also goes to the point that we didn't have cell phones or no. immediate ways to call police. Because you think with the RV situation, if they had a cell phone, they called the police and they're like, hey, these kids, especially this is twice now, yep. that they would have been able, especially- Don't in- forget the motorcycle incident yeah. too. So I mean, they're regularly terrorizing motorists. Right. So you'd think in a, such a small area that police would probably be able to locate it, but they're probably not getting that information, if at all. So let's say every single person calls police. They're still having to wait until they get home. And I would bet that most people don't call the police. Not in a situation like that, too. You're just happy to get out alive. I would be afraid of drawing further attention to myself. Like these people were seemingly threatening to kill me. Also in a small town, it's, I think, these people might have been from that area, but you don't always know that people traveling on that road, and you said it's a pretty road that goes through Indiana, you could yeah. have truly like tourists or travelers that are just cr- passing through. It's a main thoroughfare. Yeah. yeah. They may not even have realized. So that definitely adds to it. When you started talking about it, I started wondering like, how can they have been caught by now? But 
it's now kind of all piecing together why the police may not have even known. And if they did, it's probably not enough information that they could have pulled it together and they're not getting it fast enough. At this point, no one's actually gotten hurt. Right. These are legitimately dangerous things, but it becomes really complicated when no one has yet had bodily harm. There's a lot of leeway when you're just doing stupid shit, especially when some of these guys are young. Remember, one of them's only 17. I'm sure there was a little bit of like a boys will be boys mentality, which is shitty, but I get it at the same time. Yep, that sounds very accurate. So unfortunately, things would only get a little bit scarier for these four. After terrorizing motorists, they graduated to home invasion and robbery. In one instant, they broke into a house wearing masks and bandanas before lining up all of the occupants face down on the floor, which I try to put myself in that scenario. You're surely thinking this is it. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to die with whomever. I don't know if these were friends or family or what the scenario was, but this is it. I'm going to spend my last seconds next to these people completely terrified. It's such an easy sentence. Oh, they broke in and they asked everyone to lay down and it doesn't even begin to describe the terror of what that actually looks like. And we've talked about it like with John Bonet and thinking that someone is in your home or the idea of it, this is your safe space and someone has invaded it. That's right. That's a truly terrifying, that doesn't you don't get over easily. So, you know, it's not lost on us. Just to further that, because it's such a good point, this is your place of power. Put yourself in the position of on your own property, in your own space, in your own place of power. You are so scared that you allow someone to subdue you and lie you on the ground. Nope, I'm out. Luckily, in this particular situation, they were not murdered. These gentlemen robbed the house shake some things up, leave some very, very scared people on the floor, but everyone gets away alive. They weren't ready for murder quite yet, thank God. But that changed on Valentine's Day. In fact, early that morning, Roger and crew came upon a German shepherd and shot it dead so that Roger could show them how easy it is to take a life. Michael, besides paranormal and like random acts, you have now broken my third rule, which is... An animal. I know. So. I know. Thank you. I should you. have had a trigger warning just for that. Yeah. Like that's. Trigger <laughs> warning. Dead animals. Like, yeah. Uh, that's horrifying. What's. I've thought about this since researching this. Like if anyone came at my dogs, like come at me, that's fine. I'm going to come back at you like a crazy person. You come at my dogs, you are going to see a level of insanity from me <laughs> that I can't even put into words. I just. Plus I why? think. Why would you do that to a defenseless animal? Yeah, I don't want to harp on the animal thing because obviously I'm I'm joking because I'm I don't put anybody's you know human of life of like. Course. But I do right. think to say that it's a defenseless animal that can't brandish a gun or a knife back right. at you. So at least with a a person, you could think that maybe I mean obviously with weapons and stuff like that, you might be outpowered or outmaneuvered. But you're talking about a completely defenseless animal, and that definitely takes a different type of people. You hear people in prison who have been put away for murdering people that would never, absolutely never kill an animal because of this, air quotes, moral high ground that it is truly defenseless. It's like a child. So some further research, I read this really fantastic statement that the lawyer that defended Roger Drollinger in several of his cases 
put out after Roger was put away. So he kind of shared his recounting of what happened and what that whole situation was like. And he mentioned at one point that Daniel Stonebreaker reached out to him, that's the 20-year-old, and was giving him some details. And I couldn't find this anywhere else. So interesting to see if it's true. But from this lawyer's position of it, he was saying that Daniel basically made all of those guys do a blood oath, that they were each going to kill someone. What kind of control does this Roger guy have over the others that at that point, when someone is literally making you physically bleed in order to make an oath to take someone else's life, if you've stayed up to that point, why are you not getting out right then? This is the part that I have such a struggle with is like, I think I have so much sympathy throughout some of the stories that we've told where I could like, oh, I can understand it from that point of view. I don't understand this at all. And maybe that's because I was raised in a good home by very confident parents who taught me to be a very confident woman. But like, it is so hard for me to put myself in a place where I would let someone have that much control over me that I would do what they say, like go commit a murder that I don't want to actively participate in. That part is so unfathomable to me. I tell people all the time, I would not be a good on a jury because I would not be here for that bullshit. I'll be like, absolutely not. Grow up. There's such good psychology behind it. And I'm sure there's all these reasons that put that person there. And it's probably very judgmental for me to feel that way. But judge on. There's, I can't. It's so hard for me to fathom that. Like how giving someone that much power. I felt the same way about the Amy Fisher case though, right? People that grew up in homes that didn't support them, where they didn't have resources, those are the people that tend, not always, but that tend to make these kinds of bad decisions. So it does, like it breaks my heart a little bit. What kind of upbringing, what kind of life did you have that this is the person that you are letting set your example and to set your course in life? It also made me think at this point too, and maybe this is just me connecting it, but all of these things that we know about them trying to terrorize motorists, throw in freaking cement blocks at motorcyclists and all of that, if that happened after this blood oath to kill someone, Roger Drollinger's intent for each of those scenarios was absolutely to take a life. And that should terrify all of us. Oh, I totally agree with you. At that point, the Gang of Four was ready for a real kill, and their victims were to be chosen at random, a thrill kill as it was later going to be called. They drove around the small area in West Central Indiana looking for a good target and picked the Spencer home because it looked like several people were there and there were nicer cars out front that may land the men not just a set of murders, but some new vehicles and the money that they could make off of them. The home was that of Betty Jane Spencer. Betty was at home with her biological son, Greg Brooks, and her three stepsons, Ralph Spencer, Raymond Spencer, and Reeve Spencer. Her husband, Keith, had left for work earlier that day without, of course, knowing that he'd never get to see his wife or his boys again. The crew watched Keith leave, and get this shit, they cut the telephone line to the mobile home after he had left to ensure that their soon-to-be victims wouldn't be able to call for help if they happened to survive. And they lied in wait to make their move. So that interview that I mentioned earlier with Daniel Stonebreaker, the one where I referenced that the attorney had talked to him, Daniel revealed that David, Michael, and him planned to wear the same bandanas and masks they wore for the previous robberies, but Roger came and ripped them off their faces, saying that they wouldn't need them. They were obviously trying to conceal their identities. But Roger said that no one would survive to tell the tale anyway, so it didn't matter. 
They went inside and changed Betty's life forever along with the boys, and this is going to sound awfully familiar. They decided to line them all up on the floor face down. Roger then pointed his gun at all three of his accomplices and told them that if they did not decide to shoot, that they would be victims that day too. Which I'd, takes me back to that blood oath and like, how that how the hell are you hanging out with this guy? Like how, even at that point, like he's really going to take all three of us and this family of four. What level of control did he have over them? I, I might don't... have committed murder, but I would not have been to those innocent people. Like I probably would have shot him right then. That's my thing. And they're if... like, my fight or flight, it would have hit its max. All of them had weapons. Right. If all three of them ganged up on him, I don't care how much more proficient he is, your odds of getting him before he gets you are still pretty high. There were so many points in this story, which makes me very glad that all of them ended up with the sentences that they did at the end of this. There were so many chances and choices made to stay in this situation when they could have chosen instead to leave. Because they did start shooting. And shooting. And shooting. I couldn't find any reports of exactly how many shots the authorities think were shot that day, but Betty alone, and this was upon her death several years later, she had more than 80 pellets that were still found inside of her body. Because these were, it was shotgun, right? These were scattershot, that's right. Yes. For those of you that don't know a lot about guns, so, you know, they always say the thing about a handgun is you need to aim. That's right. To shoot it. Having a handgun for your protection or things like that, those are things you need to know about. A lot of people who don't want to aim, you're looking more at like this shotgun. So it scatters. You don't have to aim as well because you're going to hit your target. You're probably going to hit multiple targets, but you're going to hit your target for those maybe who aren't skilled, a shotgun is better to have. I'm just trying to imagine, again, what must have been going through their heads. Like we talked about this with the robbery earlier, that you're put in such this place of being subdued in your own home. All of your power has been taken from you. And then when you actually hear the shotgun's cock, you know, that's something that those robbery victims didn't have to deal with earlier on. But like that moment where you're just like, oh my God, this yeah. is actually it. The only thing that you could hope is for whoever didn't make it that it went fast. Like with that amount of being shot, it's likely that, you know, the victims whose lives were taken probably went very fast. We have to hope so. But she did not die that day. She went on to live for decades. She was unfortunately the only survivor that day. All three of her stepsons and her biological son were slain. Gregory Brooks was 22. Raymond Spencer was 17, Reeve Spencer was 16, and Ralph Spencer was only 14 years old. Still at the beginning of their whole lives, really. And just couldn't have even thought for a second at the beginning of this Valentine's Day that that's how this was going to end up. Well, Roger and crew thought they had killed Betty too because some of the buckshot that was meant for her head had missed, largely hitting her instead in the shoulder and it had displaced the wig that she regularly wore on her head. And they mistook the displaced wig for part of her head being blown off, and they thought that she was dead. And Betty, she would tell later, lay there still because she thought that was her best chance of her getting out of their alive and any potential of getting her sons out of their alive as well. So thinking that the job was done, finally, Roger and his other crew of three left. Now, Betty was later quoted 
saying that when she came to, because she was kind of in and out of consciousness throughout this experience, that she heard a loud sound. And when she woke up, she said something to the effect of, I looked around at the boys and I said, is anyone alive? And no one answered. And I realized the sound I heard was blood rushing from our boys. And it sounded like a waterfall. Harold Eskew, a neighbor, said that Betty Spencer ran to his trailer at 1 a.m. yelling, help me, I've been shot. After Eskew called the sheriff's office, Spencer said those poor boys are laying up their dead. Some teenagers came in and tied them up and robbed them and then shot them. How close was she to this neighbor? Do you know? It sounded like they were in some sort of trailer park neighborhood. Probably pretty close, which also makes you think, did this guy even hear the hubbub before she came over? That's what I would wonder too, is surely somebody, if they're close, and I almost wonder if they're not as close as what I might be imagining. Like maybe there is a little bit of... Especially knowing this area, it is very spread out. It's again, very sparsely populated, but it's a big lake. Yeah, like maybe it's like a part, like a... A neighborhood of these smaller, like single wide kind of trailers and stuff, but maybe they're spread out more. So also, I cannot believe that not only did she survive, but she had the wherewithal to get up, that she could even walk, wasn't paralyzed, and that she could then make it to the neighbor's house to do anything. Bodies are miraculous things. I know that she said aloud Is anyone alive? And there wasn't anybody alive. But you have to think that somewhere in her consciousness, she was like, let me get up. Let me go find help because maybe somebody's around. And if not, I need to survive this. And I'm sure there's probably the hope that maybe somebody else did survive and they just couldn't talk. That's just unbelievable that she was able to get up and walk to the neighbor's house. There is one hero in this story and it's absolutely Betty Jane. Everything that you said about just the human resilience factor of that and the fact that she was able to get up, run across the street, try to save her sons. And honestly, beyond that, because I'm sure it had to run across her mind at some point in this period of time that perhaps they were dead, but it's still like, oh, no, though, I'm going to bring to justice the motherfuckers that did this to my family. Yeah, you're not going to get away with this. Yeah, that you're not. I'm if I have to stay crawl alive just to vindicate and drag my body. Yeah, that's amazing. It's such a just inspirational story that she was able to survive physically. She had to, by the way, she recounted in several interviews and in letters that she wrote to multiple publications over her life that this wasn't just about getting them sentenced one time, that she, when they would come up for possibility of parole, any time appeals were made to this case, she had to go and tell this story again and again and again. The strength that you have to hold within yourself to tell the story of having your four sons slain right next to you. We talked about it with John Bonet, how when something like this happens, and it's not just Jacob Wetterling's parents are a great example of two, right. where something happens like this and it becomes your life's mission. That's right. And so not only was she saying, uh, no, this is what happened to me, but like, this is what happened to my children. And so because of that, I will continue to be here at every parole hearing until I'm cold in the grave. Yes. I very much think it became what her mission was. She, in fact, Betty Jane Spencer went on to become a major victim's right activist and eventually was even honored at a special White House ceremony by President Ronald Reagan. 
and she died in October of 2004 with those 80 pellets still in her body from that awful day all the way back in 1977. Almost three more decades that she lived with this memory, with the physical damage of it, which we talked about Mary Jo Buttafuoco and how like crazy that is too. Just the strength to to turn those very painful things into a point of of strength and ability to push forward. All four men involved in the shooting were sentenced to life in prison. Thank God it restores faith in the justice system. I did read in some places that some of the days in between when they committed this crime and when they were charged for it were some of the most terrifying in that community. I can't even imagine like your sense of safety when it's your home is broken, but the impact is bigger than just the home that was broken into and the family that was shattered, especially in such a small community. At that point, all of your senses of safety have been completely ruined, at least for a while, right? It takes a bit to get that back. Actually, all four of these men received four life sentences, one for each life they took. As they should. Drollinger, and I think this is honestly too happy an end for him, but he was found dead in his cell at the Wabash Valley Correctional Facility on January 29th in 2014. He was in his 60s, and this apparently was due to natural causes. Many years after the killings, a publication called The Journal Review was contacted by David Smith. Remember, he was the 17-year-old. And he was the youngest accomplice of the massacre, seeking to tell what he said was his side of the story. I'm going to be honest, I read some of those. It really tried to give a different take on some of the events that day. It tried to paint this picture of Betty Jane and some of the boys having um, somehow been involved with drugs that there had been opportunities for them to get away, that they might have been in separate rooms. Betty Jane largely says this is just bullshit. It seemed like he was trying to paint himself in just this slightly more positive light, like I'll take some responsibility for it, but this thing and just this other thing over here. So I'm not going to do it any justice by reading a single word of that. But I did think that it would do Betty Jane some justice as well as her family to read at least some of her statement that she wrote back to that journal review when she found out that they were going to publish those interviews. She was understandably very, very upset by that. I think it'd be doing Betty Jane just some service to read some of her last lines in this letter. So she said of David Smith, David Smith has lied during this portion Why should we believe anything else he had said in any other parts of this series? And this was just about some of the details of the case. Prisons are full of people who refuse to take responsibility for their actions. David Smith seems to be one of those. Our boys and I did not choose to be victims of this crime. David Smith and his friends did choose to commit this crime. Now he and his friends are separated from society by serving life sentences in prison. Eight young men's lives were destroyed that night, but four were innocent victims. Please leave us alone. Those who loved Raymond Reeve and Ralph Spencer and Greg Brooks are serving a life sentence of pain. Please don't make it worse for us. Signed, Betty Jane Spencer. So I found this online because I was looking for um, pictures that we can share on our social. But um, Betty and her niece... Leanne had a really close relationship, especially after her children passed. And that makes me happy that she had family afterward that was close to her. A couple of things that I think is interesting to bring out is um, Leanne actually named her son Greg. 
Oh, after Greg Brooks. Yeah. And so Aww. Betty Jean called her on the day that he was born and said, thank you for no longer making this a bad word to say. And that for 15 years, she had longed to hear her son's name spoken again. And that's something that a lot of grieving parents will share that it it's hard to kind of speak that name. And so she was so proud that her niece had named her child after that. I just want to say like one quote that she brought up that her aunt said. This is what Betty Jane said. Yeah. And I thought this was so good. So she said, I've learned many valuable lessons since the boys were murdered. On the night of their death, I learned that I am not afraid to die. And since then, the most important lesson learned is that I'm not afraid to live. And her niece goes on to say Mm -hmm. that she gets up, you know, every morning and takes a step because of the strength that Betty talked through and shared with her about hope and that she's living and breathing and learning like more about grief and hope every day. Um, And so it was just a nice tribute to her aunt. And also they shared some pictures of the boy and, and Betty really did go on. She met with Ronald Reagan. Like she really went on to be this huge victims advocate. And we talked about before that, like, there's nothing you can do to change this horrific event from happening, but like how you figure out to live past that, live with that grief. How do you make people's life better? Honestly, that's the part of true crime and understanding what happened. But like, how do survivors of this move past it, I think is just all inspiring. You have choices after that. You go through this thing and it traumatizes you and it puts you in this position and gives you even an excuse, a very valid one, if you choose to, to either not do anything with your life or maybe to go in a wrong direction. And so when you hear these stories of people that not only went through this horrific kind of situation and survive it, but then go on to make the choice to be these advocates that we can honor and that, you know, you're leaving this kind of impression on future family members. Hard choices were made there for this woman to overcome all of that, to go through that level of loss. And to turn it into something beautiful at the end of the day, bravo, Betty Jane Spencer. Bravo. You can't ask for anything more than that. And that is the horrific story of the case of the Hollinsburg massacre back on Valentine's Day in 1977, right next to my hometown. So like we said, maybe not a a light episode this week, but you know, kind of cool to dip back into the 70s and do something from my hometown. And Betty Jane is definitely someone that's going to be on my mind for a long time after doing this story. Just, I I don't know, I hope all of us can maybe just have a little bit of that level of strength in our lives. I'm definitely going to be thinking about her and harrowing her and all the things that I do. So like tomorrow morning when I don't feel like getting up, I'm going to be like, this lady (laughs) crawled through... To you know, try to save her sons. Blood, guts, and glory. Like, the least I can do is get up and make coffee and take my dogs to the bathroom. That's so, right. And um, protect your dogs, man. Don't let them be like oh, that German Shepherd. I can't. We're sorry for that. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you um, for sticking with us for another week. We hope you enjoyed this. We'll be coming at you, we know, in at least a couple of weeks with our Get to Know Your Host episodes. So we're yeah. excited about letting... You all hear that? I think I want to dig into the Peterson, the Scott Peterson. It was uh, one of our listeners reached out. Actually, I think a couple. um, But actually, early on, one of our listeners reached out. 
this case, there's a lot to it. And there was a lot that came after it. So it, it, I think it takes a little bit of investigation, but I think that would be a good one to dig into. So if you guys have ideas or cases that you want to hear unsolicited feedback on, let us know. Hit us on those socials. Or of course, you can email us at nosybeesforlife at gmail.com. That's N-O-S-E-Y-B-E-E-S, the number four, L-I-F-E, at gmail.com. We're giving you permission to slide into our DMs. Whoa. <laughs> okay. All right, you guys. See you next week, friends. Bye. Hey, you made it to the end of the podcast. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. And I know that we've given a lot of our unsolicited feedback, but at the end of the day, it's also important that we remember to stay kind Stay curious. But of course, stay nosy. Bitches. Bitches.